This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. All right, there we are again. It's the middle of summer and summer in Europe is shaping up to be a record-setting one, not in a good way, but such is life. On to brighter things, I'm quite excited about the guest I am about to speak with today, for her story is a rather extraordinary one. Before we hear it all from her, let me quote from the 20-year-old entry in the Republic of INSEAD yearbook. Open quotations. Beneath the placid exterior of this Aussie lass lies the great mind of an epic thinker. She will always be known for her generosity, whether it's servicing up mouth-watering rosemary pork chops or coaching half of the McKinsey interviews. She is always there for you. Well-traveled and well-connected, she holds the records for most frequent flyer miles and most IM contacts. Her passion for business is only the beginning. As a single handicapped golfer and black belt martial artist, you can only wonder how someone of such camper shot stature could be so much larger than life. Perhaps she's only human, though her immunity to jet lag and endless amounts of energy suggest otherwise. As the person most likely to rule the planet in the future, wherever you end up, When we call to inquire, we know you'll rightly say, everything is going extremely well. Close of quotation marks. So, there we are. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast to the person most likely to rule the planet in the future. I love this entry. I keep saying it's amazing how well the entries of so many of us have aged. And yours definitely proves the the point, but you'll tell us all about it. But I take it everything is going extremely well, is it? Everything is going extremely well. Excellent. All <laughs> right. All right. And are you still immune to jet lag or it's caught up with you? I am still immune to jet lag. Gosh, I'm jealous about this one. That saves a lot of time. But okay, let's start from the beginning or the end, whichever direction you want to take. The last 20 years in a nutshell in your life, professional, personal, and it's five minutes. Well, let's see. Three million miles of travel, approximately. Three continents, three children, three C-suite roles, and lived in over seven cities and 10 addresses. So I've been a bit of a nomad. That's the 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 magic number for you, huh? Three is the magic number. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, today today I, I lead the diabetes business in Medtronic, and, uh, which is a global lead in medical devices. The business is about $2.3 billion and with over 5,000 employees. And we've been serving the diabetes community for over 40 years, so we're really proud of that. 
And most importantly, it's very personal. 70% of our employees has a personal connection to diabetes. They either have a relative or, you know, a member, a family member that, that lives with the disease. And actually around 20% of our employees also lives with diabetes. So it's a very personal mission for us. Mm. So that's what I've been doing. And how did you get to Medtronic, actually? Because it's been quite a journey, as you said, three continents and three C-suites. So that's your third one. Yes. Well, I, as you know, Melena, my, my, my background in software and tech has, you know, really was formative in, at Microsoft, doing all things on consumer software and services um, and the precursor to cloud technologies and things like that. And that was super fun and very exciting to work on new to world um, things that you now see and take for granted. And so that was super cool. Um, and then by sort of a bit of happenstance and luck, I ended up joining Tyco Electronics, which is a sort of a sensor and com electronic components manufacturer. And I got my big first big job running a large business there. Um, and then I made it to chief strategy officer. Then I started a big data practice as well in, in the, in the business that was really thrilling and exciting. And so I didn't stay far away from my, you know, software roots. And then Honeywell recruited me to be its first chief commercial officer, um, which is all things around, you know, corporate strategy, growth, commercial, you know, commercial excellence, marketing and product innovation. So I did that. And then I, you know, was promoted to lead the software business for Honeywell, which again was very exciting. I, I find myself in these, not the mainstream part of these companies, but having a big impact on the future of those companies. So I did that. And then, and so now I find myself at Medtronic and <clears throat> a lot of people say, well, that's very different from, you know, some of the industrial companies as well as the software world. And the funny thing is, the, the concepts are exactly the same. If you look at the diabetes disease, we're working on advanced technology that can sense blood glucose and figure out how much insulin a body needs using advanced software algorithms, as well as, you know, the best in biomedical engineering, as well as control systems. So it's basically a controls problem. And that's essentially the business where I came from at Honeywell. It's all about controls. And think about control problems as how does the air conditioning regulate, say, in an office building that you sit in, or how oil and, ga oil and gas or chemicals get produced. They're all types of control systems. And diabetes is another one. And I couldn't be more excited to be part of a, a business having such a big impact on people's lives. Hmm. And when we were talking uh, in the briefing, it got mentioned that you came into a turnaround situation. So what mm -hmm. is the turnaround? What are you working towards? Or what's the challenge? Well, the, the business is a bit of a turnaround. I mean, it's been, it's, you know, it invented the first really commercial insulin pump 40 years ago. And, you know, diabetes is a terrible disease. It's a chronic disease. You don't take a holiday from it. It has, it comes with a lot of stress and, a lot of physical and mental burden as well as administrative burden. So what we want to do is want to work on technologies that can improve people's lives, help them manage their diabetes, but also help them sometimes forget they have the disease. And that's a very hard problem to drive outcomes without creating extra work on the part of the patient. So 
and you know, and, and so I found myself here because the business had been a leader on so many things. The first uh, continuous glucose monitor, the first um, insulin pump that was augmented with a you know a CGM, a blood glucose monitor, and um, the first closed loop system, hybrid closed loop, as well as you know the the latest um, products that we have today. And you know, as when you're a leader, sometimes hubris can take over, and it's easy to fall into the trap of you know the innovator's dilemma. And so, you know, the business lost its way for a number of years. And so, what we're working on now is getting back to leadership. And we have a lot of exciting things we're working on that uh, we want to bring out to market and further improve people's lives. So, is it innovation or is it organizational or it's both? It's really both. I mean, at the end of the day, the med tech industry is driven by innovation. You can't survive by just um, on, on products from yesterday. It's a very competitive space. There are new, there's new research all the time. There's new therapies. Uh, there's new things that we can push um, the boundaries on. And so you always have to be innovating. Uh, and our spend of R&D is very high, generally as an industry. And uh, and I think there was a lack of focus on that. Uh, if you go back maybe, you know, 10 years ago, a lack of focus and it catches up with you. It's very hard to catch up. These mm. innovation here is you're putting something in someone's body, right? So the, the threshold of quality and uh, clinical outcomes that you have to be able to generate is real. The product works. It really does. People depend on it to stay alive. And so um, this is not a simple thing. And, and so the, the key is to be consistent, and, uh, but we have a terrific team of people who are very motivated. A lot of people live with the disease, are very motivated to help improve the lives of really millions of people that suffer from diabetes. Hmm. So if you look back on the last 20 years, what would you say has been the big and cha- biggest challenge for your personal, professional, both? The biggest challenge, well, you know, I think actually having kids and having a career is very, very, um, it's a juggling act for everybody. They're fun. Kids are fun. I love little kids. But it always comes back to the question of how, how much should you work? And for me, I always, I work to live. I don't live to work. Now, you can choose to go flat out in your career and you know, it's hard to have a family if you do that and it's hard to have hobbies and frankly, you don't have a life. But you can get to probably some genius or ludicrous <laughs> exceptional level in your career. But it's a big personal sacrifice to get there. And for me as a working mother, it's a constant struggle to balance family and kids. And, but, you know, it's, impo- and it's important that you be, you're able to spread yourself between work and family and I think it's more interesting that way, but the price is maybe you don't get as far as your career. So of course I want both. And mm. so I try to have one foot in each other and do the best I can to be present in each area. So I think that's the biggest challenge. Mm. How old are the kids now? The kids are, the oldest is 11 and the, the youngest are twins. They're nine. Nine. There you go. Well, it's a challenge, I think, for pretty much every woman I've spoken to who has kids. 
uh, from our yeah, yes. case. So, so that's no. I think it's true there. for I think it's true for men too. I think it's it's generally speaking, having kids and or just having a family life mm. and having a life outside work is is a balancing <laughs> act. Yeah, having a life. There you go. And with regards to biggest lessons you've learned professionally, if you can pick three or one. Well, let me think. Biggest lessons, I think there's, well, it, it's hard to boil it down to a couple of things, but here goes. Um, I think one is, you know, when you're young, you don't, you're not very wise and you don't know very much and it's easy to be arrogant. And what I learned is, you know, it's important to be the best learner in the room and not the smartest person in the room mm-hmm. because humility is something that helps you ensure that you're going on the right path and that you, you're building the human capital between your ears. Like you could lose everything and still have the skills no one's going to take away the the knowledge and the capital that you you build so continue to learn and and be consistent about doing that over time so that's one the second one is to not be a victim i mean it's easy life's tragic life's tragic man i mean it's it's easy to be seduced by you know the systems against you or you're being discriminated against i mean i'm sure those things are are real and they happen but it takes courage i think to you know confront necessity you know and accept that bad things happen you know half my life i was living in poverty or close to financial ruin um and i missed out on a on a childhood but you know, every day I picked myself up, went to school, went to work, and one step at a time. And now I'm getting, I get to talk to you, so that's a pretty hooray for me. That's a pretty good deal. And so I think blaming external things doesn't make you a particularly nice person to hang around if you're always complaining or bemoaning something bad. And so I just refuse to let, you know, as luck will have it refuse to let the hands you're dealt to determine your future. And I think only you can ruin your life if you, if you choose to be jerked around by things that you can't control. So at the end of the day, to me, the biggest professional lesson is changing the events that are outside you is not possible. They just happen. But you can change your, how you view them. Mm. That's, that's possible. So why don't you go and focus on changing what's possible? And mm. I think to me, those, those lessons help you deal with adversity. I mean, a career is a marathon. Things, good things happen, bad things happen. So change what's possible. Which brings me to your life story. And I had totally uh, skipped or missed it during INSEAD. And as I was preparing, and as you are more, more of a public person than many of us, you said you are not, but... There you go. We can find information about you. So I I learned this bit about you now, 20 years later. And it is about the time you and your family um, left Vietnam, were shipwrecked and made it to Australia. And to be honest with you, this is the moment when I read this story. I was like, now I understand why she is where she is. Many things have been written about leadership and, you know, academia keeps writing. But these, like, to have it that tough as a beginning and to, to you know, to use this as the engine 
to me, that was, I, I, I read this and I'm like, now I get it. <laughs> because <laughs> we wonder, how did this person get there? How, but can you, can you tell the story? And I don't know how many of our classmates knew it at the time, 20 years ago, but it was a story that really, to me, <laughs> it shook me. And it was something new I learned about you. And it totally informed me about how you are where you are. And you said it already, but can you tell the story? Yeah. Well, look, a lot of, lots of people have a story that, a very similar story. And so there's nothing particularly special about it. Um, I think like most people, life is full of twists and turns. And so when my daughter, my oldest daughter was five, she wanted me to tell her uh, what it was like when I was five. And so I told her the story and she wrote a cute cartoon about it. And it was very funny. But when I was five, I remember waiting for my mother to pick, and my, to pick my sister and I up from school. And we were, obviously, we were, I was born in Vietnam and that's where we were. And you know the feeling when you get when all the other kids get picked up and gradually you're the last and my mother was very, very late. And so something was very, very wrong. And so you can imagine the anxiety in the five-year-old mind. And the reason why she was late, she eventually got there. It seemed like hours. It, it may have been 10 minutes. I don't, I don't remember exactly. But, and the reason why she was late was she was trying to keep our house from being confiscated by the communists. So when South Vietnam, you know, lost in the war, the communists, they didn't, you know, just take your property or your house. They just moved in. And, and she was also preparing for our escape from Vietnam because we were going to be sent to this, it's called a new economic zone. It's a euphemism for an underdeveloped part of the country that didn't have infrastructure, no water, electricity, anything. And, and my mother was a professional and my father was in the South Vietnamese army. And so it was a bit like what was going on in Cambodia with the uh, Khmer Rouge, where the professional class, uh, really the middle class, were sort of banished to the countryside and property was confiscated. So my parents decided to escape Vietnam. And then we tried three times to escape. And then the third time, we were on this riverboat. It wasn't even seaworthy. It was a riverboat. So it's a cargo boat that transports goods down a river. So it's not seaworthy, really. And so, I don't know, 70 people or so were packed onto this boat and it was drifting. And the only reason I remember actually being in a, uh, a prison cell with my parents, because that was the second time we were um, captured from trying to escape under the cover of darkness, you know. And, and so the, the only way we could escape was to lie and say we were ethnically Chinese. And so there was a policy at the time that the communists had to expel ethnic Chinese from Vietnam. So anyway, we got to escape, but it wasn't really the case. They, as soon as we reached sort of the edge of the Vietnamese waters, they, you know, soldiers came on board and killed the crew. So there was a murder a few murders, and they shot all the navigation equipment on the riverboat so it could not be steered. And so it drifted on the South China Sea for, I don't know, uh, close to a month. And then we got shipwrecked, luckily, on this tiny island in the Filipino archipelago. And it's very I, – I tried to look on Google Maps 
from time to time to see if I can find the island. But it was so small. There were only, I think, a few inhabitants on this island. But I remember it was very pretty. But as the as we've been drifting for a long time without food and water, the adults were so weak they had to be carried off the the shipwreck onto shore. Uh, they could no longer walk. And so we were on this island for, I think, a month or so. It had one airport. It was like a military airport. And then we were transported from there to Manila at this refugee camp. And so that's where we were for about eight months. And then my mother wrote to the UN, what's it called, the UN Council for Refugees. I can't remember what the body is called exactly. So she spoke French. She wrote in French asking for asylum, and we were very lucky. We got asylum in Luxembourg. The Luxembourg government wanted a French-speaking family. So, I, you know, this would have been great. Uh, in an alternative future, my French would have been impeccable and my skiing probably pretty excellent too, but that's not what happened. What happened was uh, we, there was a change in policy in Australia and the, the government at the time accepted families from Australia. So that's how, we, uh, from, from the Philippines, and that's how we ended up growing up in Australia. So French, not so good, skiing, non-existent. Uh, but I have a cool Australian accent. <laughs> so that's sort of the story. And so I have a lot of love for the people of the Philippines because, you know, they, they just show the level of kindness that, you know, you never, you grow up and you never, you're never able to repay that because they didn't, you know, they, they, they got nothing out of doing that. And, of course, I, I have a lot of love for Australia because I was lucky to grow up there. It's called the lucky country for a reason. So lucky to grow up there and to get an education and, a lot of opportunity. And of course, now I live in America, which is the land of opportunity. And, you know, it's got a fantastic merit-based system where, quite frankly, you can succeed if you work hard and aim high. So that's the, that's the, that's the initial story. But actually, there's a second story, Melena, if you don't mind. And no. I think this is a much more pronounced story. And that story is, you know, when you grow you know, life gives you certain tools depending on how you, you get brought up. And when you grow up poor, you get a lot of tools. And so as newly settled refugees in Australia, you have nothing. And it's very difficult to kind of rebuild a life. And lots of people have this experience. And that's probably the more pronounced thing because I was too little. I mean, I remember very much about the boat journey and that's somewhat interesting, but I was very young. And so my mother was a single mother. She raised four kids. Um, two weeks after we landed in Australia, um, my sister was born. So she was pregnant through this whole journey. Can you imagine you're in your, you know, uh, you know, early, really early 30s and you're, you decide to leave a country in its foreign language and with little kids. Can you imagine doing that today? That takes a lot of bravery to do that. But growing up poor, I had to support her. Um, I had to find a way to go to college. So, and then, so I had to think about how do, how do I make a lot of money while going to school? <laughs> that was the problem statement. And so, so I had a very unoriginal idea of, well, how, I'm a really good student. So how about I teach other students? How old and, were you? I was 16. Okay. So I was, so in Australia, to get into university, you have to pass an entrance exam. Everyone in the state has to pass the entrance exam and depending on your score, you get to decide what courses to go into. So medicine and law, you need very high scores. Social studies, not so much, low scores. But 
so that's sort of how it works. And it's not what you did at school. It's really your score at this test. So, so I was a good student. And so at 16, I started a business. So I figured out how to, you know, create a you know, new company. I got, I did some marketing, I got some students. And after about a year, I had a hundred students. So I converted the garage, my bedroom and the living room into classrooms. And so I would go to school Monday to Friday. I would spend Friday afternoon preparing lessons and I taught all weekend. I worked, you know, 20 hours a week doing this. And I, and I made more money than when I first got my first job at McKinsey when I graduated university. And I did this for three, for six years in this business. <laughs> and in the last year of university, I had three jobs. I had my business, which was Friday to Sunday evening. I had an internship at a, an investment bank being a quantitative analyst. And then I had a job at the university and I was studying. So that's four jobs. So I was really a terrible student, but I need to do all these things because just financial necessity. And so mm. you learn, you learn skills. And I, I think that's why I got interest in entrepreneurship and businesses. But so it's interesting that the, you started entrepreneurial and you've graduated to the most blue chip corporate environment that's out there. Uh, Medtronic is a 115 billion market cap company. You said 2.3 billion revenues of your division. And I don't know how many employees, but it's a blue, blue chip corporate. So how, how do these things reconcile in your personality? Because entrepreneurial corporate Typically, the perception is that they require very different skills because in entrepreneurial, typically, you have to get on with the work and find new ideas. In corporate, there's quite a bit of communications as well of all sorts. Mm -hmm. So, and this brings well, us it's... to the C, to discussing the chiefs, the C, the C-suite. So, uh, it's actually a nice transition as well. So, what's your take there on your personal well, journey? I don't think it's... I think it's a fair point, and but I don't think it's c incompatible because in order to be successful, you have to be able to figure out where the where the world is going. And I'll I'll give you a good example of that and how I sort of ended up away from a bit away from software to this sort of physical world thing. Like if you look in the last twenty years, you know, software has had a huge impact on two in big industries. One is media. The way we consume media and television and newspapers completely revolutionized by digital. And then the other industry is retail. I mean, it's 24-hour shipping from Amazon, right? It's completely different. And in the next 20 years, it's going to be every other industry will go through changes that dramatically. And that, acceler that, thing, that is accelerating that trend. And so I think for me, I've always ended up in the, for some reason, in the crappiest part of companies that actually happens to be the where the future is and i'll give you a couple of examples well example one is when i joined microsoft i was asked can you you know do you want to join windows or office and i picked msn which at the time was the smallest business made no money in fact it was losing money and it just didn't have any prestige but that was where the future was. It was the future consumer software and services upon which all the cloud and microservices are built today and the rise of Azure and so forth. So if you play, if you 
look for where the puck's going, to use the cliche, that's where the opportunity is, isn't in, you know, where people have already built things. And, and maybe those places are very prestigious, but you have to have your own independent thought process for where the opportunity lies. So I had a great experience working on all, the, all those foundational technologies, which are in vogue today. Another example is, you know, the business I'm in now. The business I'm in now is, you know, not the largest um, segment of the company. It's more consumer. It's very direct to consumer. It isn't selling to hospitals. And it has a lot of the consumerization, the software development that MedTech will go through. And so that's where it's very exciting. There's a lot of change. And when there's change, there's inflection points and there's opportunity. And you learn and you, uh, you build skills that are sought after by a lot of people. So I don't think they're compatible. I think it's choices people make. Do you want to do something that people have already built and then you incrementally improve on that? Or do you want to create something brand new? Mm. So I think of myself as probably a bit of a builder, um, someone who likes to build things and is entrepreneurial. And I have found ways to do that at scale at large companies. Mm. Okay, so the scale, okay, at scale. So there you go. So you're still an entrepreneur, in other words, just doing it at scale. So you skip all the painful seed, uh, series A, B, C, etc. rounds of small startups. Your five cents on getting to the top, the C-suite, for all the aspiring chiefs among us and maybe the younger alumni as well. Well, Maybe a couple of ideas. I think that there's probably two paths that you can go to to get to, say, an extraordinary level, mastery in your field. One is to be the absolute best in one thing. Like you're going to play in the NBA or you're going to be a platinum um, musician. So, or a fantastic sports person. That's one path. Just work on being um, the Nobel Prize. Work on being extraordinary in one specific thing. That's one path. And then the second strategy is to become very good, say top quartile, at two or more things that the combination of which makes you sought after. So one is you've got to build. So I think of it as Scott Adams, the, the author of uh, Dilbert, came up with this term, the talent stack. And he basically says, you know, you can basically develop a variety of skills that work really well together. For him, he says, I'm not the best artist in the world and I'm not the funniest person in the world. But the combination of his drawing and his comedy, you, you get Dilbert. And this guy's a multi-millionaire. And so I had probably the same thing by accident where my talent stack is you know, pretty deep software experience, but I'm not Bill Gates. I, you know, I see myself as a bit of entrepreneur, but I'm not Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk. I've got some manufacturing. I've got a strong work ethics and some of risk tolerance and some courage to do things. And so that combination makes me unique and unique such that I got my first C-suite role at age 41. And I've had three roles in, you know, senior leadership teams. So, so one is to figure out what skill set you're building in order to get to that level. What is your talent stack that makes you particularly unique and sought after? And the second thing is, I would say, what do you want to be in the C-suite? 
right? These roles are 24 by seven. They're always on. You've got to be a microscope and a telescope. You've got to be prepared to make sacrifices. Maybe you have to move. Maybe you have to travel a lot. So be careful what you wish for. And so I think if you still want to do it and get to the C-suite, focus on creating unique things for customers. You've got to contribute in some way. You know, don't be political and don't be seen to be someone, don't be someone that's seen to be doing something, be the person doing something. And then I think the opportunities will find you. Just don't be a poser. Posers don't make it. mm, That's very interesting because the average person I'd argued would have in mind for big corporates a lot of politics and being very political to to, uh, get to the top. So you're saying something very much uh, in the opposite direction, which is refreshing, but I don't know how many organizations you can apply it to. I don't know. I'm just throwing you. Well, you have to find you have to find the right culture that suits your value system and is a meritoc meritoc mer, mer, is Socratic. based on merit. Say, <laughs> yeah, thank you. And for for me, don't be a poser. Hmm. Actually, contribute. Figure out what is your unique contribution. Be really, really good at it. Build your talent stack, and then the opportunities will find you. I I have not. Like right now I'm focused on diabetes and doing a good job and really delivering for our customers. And I really believe that you do that. And I, this has been my experience in the last 20 years. If you really focus on contributing, building uniqueness and differentiation in your talent stack, opportunities will find you. Mm. You, you don't have to go down the path of compete. You can compete by being political, by being self-promotional but you're not really adding value. And I want to go to bed every night knowing I did my best and contributed. Mm. So, but at the same time, you've got to want to do these jobs. These jobs are very lonely. Uh, They're extremely taxing and you will make personal sacrifices to get there. So you've got to want to do it. Mm. And And if it happens, it's great, but if it does, that's fine too. Yeah. You mentioned lonely, and I've jotted down here to ask you, uh, how do you deal with the loneliness of the role? How do you, where do you get your advice or support when you need it in whichever way? What's your system? Well, there's, a, there's probably three things. The first thing is I don't fall victim. I don't, I'm not seduced by being a victim. Sometimes when bad things happen, I may feel sorry for myself for two seconds, but I don't let that take over. And I try very hard to change my view of what happened and learn from those things. Because if you don't, you can be in a negative spiral. And so one is internal fortitude, emotional stamina, because not everyone's going to like what you do and you're not going to have fans everywhere. So that's life. And you have to be able to cope with that. So that's one. Second is it helps to have, you know, a, a great spouse and a very supportive and loving family, mm-hmm. which I have. And mm-hmm. that takes a lot of work too. And, you, you know, the third thing I would say is it's also helpful to have a personal board of directors. It's people that, you know, you trust and you, you've built relationships over time that can pull you back from the brink of your excesses or when you you have blind spots and you may not see well. And so having some external perspective is very helpful. That's why cultivate relationships. 
do it because they're your friends or they're people you respect and admire, not because it helps you get ahead because that personal board of directors helps you stay grounded and humble. And they can say, you're being a jerk or you're being, you know, not very, not a very good person this way. So you need some guardrails. And so your family's a good guardrail. So is having sort of this personal board of directors um, in your life. Mm, I like this concept. And last year, to close on the business discussion, diabetes. You mentioned it in the beginning and some big numbers, but can can you give us the big picture on what is happening? Uh, it's a big problem in the States. It's a big problem in all of the developed world. It's becoming a more of a problem also in the developing world. What's the big picture? It's by some accounts an epidemic of sorts. Mm -hmm. So... What are the headline numbers we should be aware of? And what's the reality? Yep. What's the hope for the future? Things you're working on, obviously, without giving us secrets. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, diabetes as a disease is when your pancreas stops producing insulin. And you need insulin to break down food into energy. So it's actually very important. If you don't have the hormone insulin... You, you can't survive, you die eventually. So 100 years ago, actually, we're just at the 101 uh, anniversary of the discovery of insulin. So 100 years ago, if you had diabetes, you didn't live very long, you died. So there's two types of diabetes. There's type 1, and type 1 is seen as autoimmune disease. It's often diagnosed, not always, but often in children. And so your pancreas just stops working. No one knows uh, really why that happens, and there's no cure. And so that's why sometimes diabetes is called juvenile diabetes because it was seen in children. And then there's type 2. There's, there's a range of type 2, but this is typically where your pancreas may be working some, but inconsistently. And so some of it is driven by lifestyle, obesity, sort of like, you know, lifestyle um, drivers. And so th this population needs insulin. The focus of my business is on type 1 and type 2 insulin dependent. They must have insulin to just stay alive. Um, and then there's other type 2 where, you know, they can take orals, prescriptions, you know, uh, take drugs to help keep their pancreas working for a little bit longer. Some of those become in, in, insulin intensive over time, but that's sort of the population. So there's about 7 million people that have type 1 and type 2 insulin dependent. And that's our focus. That's a lot of people. If you then go to, say, the broader type 2, you're talking about, you know, 200 million people that need some sort of medication. And then beyond that, you have pre-diabetes. You could argue a lot of us are pre-diabetic. And then beyond that, wellness, because on the continuum, if you don't have a healthy lifestyle, you can develop diabetes. So... We're focused on the toughest, the toughest part of the therapy. And what we do is we make um, medical sensors. They're called con continuous glucose monitors. We have an insulin pump that delivers the insulin automatically. And we have an, an algorithm that runs that whole system so that users are hands-off. It manages it for them. Of course, there's a lot of work around diabetes management. That's only one part. And so our goal is drive better outcomes which is managing your blood glucose and then 
doing it in a way that simplifies your life as much as it can. And the problem with blood glucose is if you have too little of it, you may see people look confused and drunk. You don't feel very good. And if you have really, really low blood glucose, you have to be rushed to hospital. You have lots of complications. If you have too high blood sugar, meaning not enough insulin to break down the sugars in your body when you, after you eat, then you risk long-term eye damage, brain, you know, heart disease, kid, kidney disease. And 25% of healthcare is spent on diabetes. That's a lot in the wow. world. Yeah. So, so that's what we work on and it's very rewarding. And if I may, I received this email from a patient. If you don't mind, if I can read some excerpts. Yeah. Of it. Um, and the heading of the email says, a heartfelt thank you for transforming my life. So this says, as you know, I recently transitioned to the Minimed 780G along with the Guardian Sensor 4. And though it's only been a few days since I started using this setup, I'm absolutely astounded by its efficacy. To say that this is a remarkable achievement would be an understatement. It has been nothing short of revolutionary for me. The automated insulin delivery coupled with cutting-edge glucose monitoring has effortlessly improved my timing range to a staggering 100%. For someone who has been managing diabetes for over five decades, witnessing the level of glucose control achieved in the last 24 hours has been unprecedented in my experience. I have earnestly longed for the day when I could bid goodbye to the constant stress and struggle of managing my blood glucose levels. This system, in its own way, brings me close to a cure as I could ever dare to dream in my lifetime. Mm. So when we make systems, technology, advanced technology like this, that has this kind of reaction within 24 hours of use by somebody, you can understand the stress and burden of this disease and how meaningful it is for those of us working in metronic diabetes. My grandfather was diabetic, and I think I was 12 years old when I was actually administering one summer vacation. I was giving him the shots mm -hmm. of insulin. And yeah, then, of course, he didn't live very long and uh, had the gangrene. And uh, so, yes, I know it firsthand, so I'm tearing up mm -hmm. a little bit there, but there you go amazing hopefully to the extent that we can manage our health stay off obesity is one good advice right um and, now, and melina, yes. melina if i can say you know i used to feel i used to think working on software apps was really exciting and it was going to change the world and but now i look at you know Say, let's say if you make a game on the iPhone, is that as thrilling as applying your brain power and your energy towards something like the area of diabetes where you can really help people's lives? Like, it's just not, it's just not a no brainer for me. Mm, absolutely. Because uh, you ask, how, how did yeah. you end up here? Yeah. And, yeah. and that's really why. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was also. Sylvia, in an earlier episode, I'm quoting from memory, so it's not going to be precise, but she said, the last 20 years, too many bright man minds have been wasted on creating advertising revenues for companies. And this potential could be invested elsewhere for much better causes. So there you are. You are one of those examples. So <laughs> that's exciting. If we can switch gears and talk a little bit about giving back. Now, again, I was reading up on you and I 
read you received the Women Worth Watching Award in the U.S. in 2018. And this is where I learned that your favorite charity is the Catholic Church, which at first I was, wow, the Catholic Church, really? And then uh, it went into the details of why, and it was specifically the Society of St. Vincent de Paul in Australia. And this is linked to the story you were giving us earlier about you finding your way in, uh, in Australia. So I wanted to ask you, and I ask this of everyone, how do you think about giving back in general? And, and how do you choose where to, to, to give? And it, obviously it's money, but it's also time. It's also the thought and helping others in all sorts of ways. So what's your framework or frame of thinking on this? I think you said it right. I mean, one of the things I love about America is the generosity of people here. It's, a, you know, having lived in Australia, but also in Europe, coming to the U.S., it's one, one thing that's very pronounced. You meet people from all walks of life. They could be super wealthy, just more modest, or even people who struggle. And what you see is it's very much in the culture to give back. And it's in money and it's also in, in time. And I think it's very normal for people to want to work on something and be part of something that's bigger than themselves. Of course, we all want to achieve and maybe get ahead in our career and all that sort of thing. But it's very hollow if you're not doing something, applying yourself to something bigger. And so it is personal. I mean, I, you know, I'm Catholic, the Vinnies, the, the Society of St. Vincent de Paul, we call them Vinnies in Australia. They, they collect um, clothing, they do a lot. And, um, and so when I had, my family had nothing, they were very, very supportive. And it really did help us in the early days in Australia. So today I'm, I, I apply my energies to uh, health and in particular the diabetes community. And I want to help not just in money because it's easy to give. Like if you have it, you can give and that's, that's good and that's helpful. But applying your skills to innovating to improve people's lives is, a, is another example of that. And also, as you say, your time, your time and energy. And building skills in even the next generation so they can do more is helpful because otherwise you I mean think about you know I did some work in in the past helping kids from you know poor neighborhoods get ahead and it wasn't just you know here's some money it's actually building their skills I grew up in a in a town that was near Cabramatta and Cabramatta was the heroin capital of of Australia I mean it was pretty bad. And so I remember there was a book where all you had to, you just needed three data points, what your parents did, what your postcode is and where you went to school and your future was determined, right? So you grew up in a poor neighborhood, your parents had, you know, my mother worked at Australia Post. She was in a manual job and she was a professional in Vietnam. She did that for 40 years. And, and my school was kind of in the backwater. I mean, it just, there was really nothing particularly advantageous about in that area. And, and I didn't get out of that cycle by having sort of charity contributions. It was people who taught me skills. And so the lo longer lasting thing is how do you help build up skills and knowledge in people 
so that they can be greater versions of themselves and reach their full potential. To me, that's the bigger, the bigger dream mm. that we can, you know, contribute. I keep saying I want to put the place on fire. That's with regards to Bulgaria, but yeah, little fire here, there, and one of these days in a good way. All right. So if we switch to the last bit, which is the quick round of questions, if you are ready. I'm proudest, ready. Proudest achievement. My kids. Success for you is? Happy customers. Okay. Happiness is? A bowl of ramen. <laughs> Biggest regret? Not being present. Mm-hmm. What keeps you awake at night? The erosion of liberty. Very timely. Wish you had known someone had told you. Don't agree to something you don't agree with. But you've learned, presumably, with yes. time. <laughs> if you had to do it all over again, what would you change? Nothing. Retirement, ever or never? I have a dream to study at the Cordon Bleu in Tokyo. Uh-huh. In Tokyo. All right. Well, that's a very good destination. If you had to pick one book everyone should read, and I know you read a lot, but let's see. It's very, this was a very hard question, but I'm going to pick 12, 12 Rules for Life by Jordan Peterson. All right. Most admired public person. It's actually hard to tell if public per- personas are real. Mm-hmm. You're not the first one to give me more or less this answer. I have someone else on the show who is in the film industry and he says, you know, what you see is not what <laughs> it is. So, all right. And the last one is, are you coming to the reunion? I'm trying to make it. Yes. Well, if I can tempt you and because that was another fact I didn't realize or I had forgotten this one probably I knew about you is your, are you still a single, single uh, digit handicap player? No, I was never a single handicap player. I was going to oh, correct you on that. I, I did not write up? my blurb in the yearbook, but somebody made that up. Someone made it up, but I used to play golf. I still golf. play golf, but, but so not there that you go. good. You know, golf uh, on Friday morning, Daniel Elfin is organizing a few flights. So if we may t- tempt you, the Fontainebleau Club is there for for us and uh, i can finally officially make it official and say that this was a conversation with qtan dalara executive vice president and president of medtronic diabetes calling in from los angeles which is her home at present thank you so much for your time q and i i do hope we see you on campus 20 years later thanks melena it was it was fun catching up with you thank you You are listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and dare I say colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D podcast edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Dare Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.